the light banter is going to happen in just a second. I tell you, it's interesting because I was just watching a documentary on Netflix that dealt with um, plant-based, a plant-based approach to things, and uh, yeah, so this is really place. timely. Yeah, really timely. So look, Code Keepers. Hey, we have the great Dr. Rand Van Voorst with us right today, and. She has a book, Once Upon a Time We Ate Animals. And I know you're saying, Seiko, what does this have to do with empowerment? Seiko, what's this have to do with black empowerment? Stay in tune. All right. Welcome to Get On Code, The Fly Guy Show, which is a series of melanated conversations focused on empowerment, health, wealth, and knowledge itself. People think in binary choices because they are conditioned to. And on the wall was a picture of a wolf and a lion. I think the wolf was the Democratic Party, the lion was the Republicans. But the drug trade and all these illegal stuff that uh, people do, that's still economics. It's just that they couldn't do it in a traditional system. We're talking about melanated wealth. So we can build wealth, but we just, for some reason, don't seem to be able to transfer it. You had a great experience. Fine. That means nothing. What were you told as a child about education? You had to be how many times better? Every impression without an expression becomes depression. Once upon a time, we ate animals. I have the book right here, and I tell you, this is an excellent read, Code Keepers. Code Keepers, this is an excellent read. It's one of those books that really changes your mindset on, uh, I guess, the future. Because this is really kind of futuristic thinking. When you say once upon a time... We did something. It's really futuristic thinking. Um, good doctor, tell us a little bit about yourself and what led you to this book. Well, um, first of all, really happy to be here. And um, secondly, you're right. It is a bit of futurism. And that is because I have a double background. So I'm an anthropologist and I'm also a futurist, professionally trained. Uh, here in the Netherlands, I live and work in Amsterdam. We're currently on full lockdown again. So I'm really working in this office. Um, and I am the president of the Dutch Future Society. And so what I like to do in all of my work is, first I like to build, and I was trained to do this, realistic future scenarios. Like I do that on the basis of literature, I do it on the basis of interviews with experts, I do it on having a sense or having learned to develop a sense for trends. And then I wanna know more. Then I'm really an anthropologist, so I wanna understand if we get to that future scenario, what will that do to individuals? What will it do to our daily lives? And what will it do to society? And so for this book, I think we've all read the news. And so we kind of know that there's a relationship between the food industry and the impact on the environment and climate changes. And we also know that, you know, it's not as romantic as it used to be, where a farmer had like 20 cows and knew all of its names, but now it's probably, you know, they'll have 7,000 cows and still they have to scale up and scale up and scale up. And so I thought people know that, but still we find it really hard to change our eating behavior. And I found that really hard as well. And so I wanted to give a really different perspective, namely not more information and more pressure onto people, but more, what if it was already the case? Tell me what it looks like. Tell me what it is so that I can at least imagine and per perhaps believe that that might be a plausible alternative. And I believe if people see the alternative, then it becomes easier to get there. 
if you don't really believe that that is happening, you know, it's really hard to invent a new color, right? Like you can only think from what you know. Right, but if right. you see the new color, then it becomes easier to understand how you can get there. And so that's what I try to do in the book. Wow. Um, so what is then the future of food? Well, it's one what I predict is that we will see a shift as we have seen with smoking. So that, you know, when you remember when I was a kid, I'm 38 now, when I was a kid, there were so many adults sitting on children's birthday parties smoking, right? And it wasn't seen as something bad. It was just being done. But then now I have a baby girl one years old, and I am pretty sure that if somebody would light a cigarette indoors with her and other babies around, we would find that antisocial because we now know it's really unhealthy. It has all these disadvantageous impacts on, you know, people around you as well. And so what I say in the book is I think it's pretty plausible that in 10, 20, 25 years from now, we will live in a world where in the parts of the world where you have alternatives available, where you have plant-based alternatives available for meat, for cheese, for dairy, there it becomes a social taboo almost to still eat a lot of meat. In other parts of the world where there's nothing else available, like I've lived in Greenland with the Inuit, for example, there I think we will continue to eat meat. But in the parts of the world where it's easy and it's going to be more affordable, there we will live of plants, of nuts, of seeds, uh, of grains, pretty much like we've been doing a large part of humankind in history. I mean, people tend to forget that. We always think like, oh, but we were the hunters, you know, we've always lived with much meat. Not really. We were scavengers, you know, because we had to invent weapons in order to become the hunters. But before that, we could only eat the meat that was already lying there for us. Um, we don't have the, the right teeth to do it otherwise. So <laughs> in this future scenario, we will probably eat more like, you know, our grandparents did. Like perhaps every now and then you would have a piece of meat, but not more. Um, other days you eat plant-based. You know, I, I remember when I started myself in Afrocentric studies, we talked about traditional African and traditional indigenous people and how their eating habits didn't include the amount of meat. It was, it was just on occasion, maybe on a ritual, uh, on a celebration that that would happen. And we've gotten to the point now where we're eating meat almost, you know, three times a day. Um, but you have a really interesting point. I, I, said, think I actually think it's the same for white people. I mean, my grandparents didn't eat that much meat either. You know, right. it, we've, we've learned ourselves to do it more, but go ahead. Well, yeah, okay. You stated that eating is a form of voting. Mm -hmm. All right, yeah. I, I can't now veganism. I can get my my mind around that. My son became a vegan a few years ago. Uh, he's actually a vegetarian now. He did that for six years. Um, I've parlayed and became a vegetarian for a while. I did have a steak today, but that's it's kind of the rarity instead of the rule now. Um, but when I heard that. And I read that you stated that eating is a form of voting. That was something I couldn't wrap my head around. So yeah, this, help, me this out, is, help me out. This is something I firmly believe in. And let me start by just a couple of weeks ago, I was in a restaurant where I had been before two times. 
the first time I went there, I asked, do you have anything vegan on the menu? And they said no. But the chef was willing to make something for me. He thought it was kind of fun. You know, it's now really hip and happening, plant-based cooking. Um, second time I was there, it was still not on a menu, but they had two things that the chef could make. Third time I get there, it was on a menu. And the reason was enough people had asked for vegan dishes to be made. And so at some point they decided we're just going to offer it because apparently there's a demand. Now it works the same in supermarkets, right? If you walk into a supermarket and you buy really cheap meat um, and you know this price probably didn't really treat the animals right, but uh, you know, this is, I'm, I'm used to buying this. So then you're basically giving a signal to the supermarket manager that you want more of that next week, right? Like this is what we're demanding. And so the supermarket manager will buy more, will make sure you have it. If you buy instead a plant-based alternative and you're supporting that company, then you're basically saying, I want that company to grow. So essentially you're shaping a future in which there will be more plant-based alternatives instead of the other way around. Now that to me is really powerful. So, you know, I don't think we should talk about guilt, you know, because you and I were all born and raised in a culture where the eating of meat was not just normal, but it was also praise. Like you really need that in order to become strong. It's important for your muscles. Now there's lots of health data nowadays that says, no, you can be really healthy with a plant-based diet, but still we were born into it. So it's only logical that we had that habit. So I don't believe in us being guilty, but I do believe in us having power and being able to at least indicate first to the supermarket managers and the chefs and the restaurant holders, but later also to politicians, like this is the way we want to go. And I think that's actually hopeful. Oh, oh that's, oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> I hadn't considered that, but it kind of leads to our focus on this show, uh, on the Get On Code show and the Beach Brothers show on empowerment. So you can change the world around you by changing the habits that you that you engage in. So simply by saying, hey, I'm interested in this, I'm interested in this, I'm interested in this, you change the habits, the behaviors of that particular restaurant. And um, then you talked about how we could change the habits of a supermarket and how we yeah. could change the habits of politicians. That's and, beautiful. And I think there's also, I mean, if you start seeing... And that's the only thing I basically want people to see, that what we eat is a choice. Like, it's not a necessary thing. It's not that we can't live in any other way. It's not that we've never done it in any other way. If you see it's a choice that we turn it into some cultural practice, then you can also see that we can unlearn that and, and reinvent, right, all those cultural practices. And that, again, really leads to power. And then there's a final thing that I'd like to share here, and that's Often you hear like, oh, that's a great idea. It would be nicer for the planet, but you know, the majority is not gonna do that. So then there's no use in me doing it. And what research shows is that you do not need the majority initially to create massive change. If you think back about really important changes, what you see is even if they do it in lab settings, right? You'll have one, to 3% to start with. And they say to these people, you are not the norm. You will say something completely different. 
but you will have to express it with pride and really believe in it. And then you see quite fast that it has a ripple effect where soon you're at 10%, soon you're at 30%. And if you're at 30%, you'll get the majority because people don't like change. We find that very scary, but we like it even less to not be part of the cool group. Like we want to be part of a social group. So if too many people start really believing in something, suddenly things become the new norm. And, you know, that is something that we forget, that you don't need the majority. You need a small group of firm believers. And the most radical, radical changes, I mean, even the whole slavery system, that did not change with the majority suddenly waking up and be like, hey, this is not okay. No, it, it changed with a couple of guys, lawyers, that said, this is simply not just. And they started doing things and discussing and getting action for their cause. And you know, at some point it changed, but it mm. always smart starts with a small group of firm believers. Wow. Um, when I was growing up in church, there was a song called Pass It On, and it starts off by saying it only takes a spark to get a fire going, and soon all those around can warm up to its glowing. And I think that's what you just did a beautiful job of elucidating. We have one question before we end. Um, I know I don't have you for a long time, but it's for a good time. And the question is, is affordability a challenge when switching to a plant-based diet? I think this is such a great question, especially because for some weird reason, the whole plant-based way of living has gotten this status of it being urban elitist. And I think that's kind of made through social media, especially Instagram, where you see a lot of those influencers like proudly showing their super expensive green juice, you know, on a, day, on a daily morning ritual or something. Mm -hmm. But I mean, if you look at the poorest communities of the world, they typically eat plant-based most of the time because they cannot mm. afford meat. I mean, I have been uh, living with people in Jakarta in, in this poorest slum of Indonesia for six years. And they mostly eat tofu, tempeh, sometimes a little bit of eggs, sometimes a little bit of chicken. And of course it differs, right, per, per country. But there's many countries where especially poor people do not eat as much meat. I also think like chickpeas are really not expensive, but the fabricated prefab things, they can be expensive. So you can work around that. And if you Google budget and vegan, it's you, you'll get so many tips and it's so doable. Well, you know what? I I know when my wife and I said, oh, we're going to have to feed our son differently. Uh, it didn't cost us as much as we expected. And when I made a decision that, you know, I'm going to do something differently, it didn't cost as much as I feared. Um, so, hey, brothers and sisters, code keepers, I, I submit to you that we should all check this out. It's a book not on simply on our health and eating, but as you heard, it's a it's a book on empowerment. And that's what we're focused on. We're focused on empowerment. And Doc, we appreciate having your book. Um, once again, Code Keepers, make sure you go pick up your copy. Doc, thank you and bless you for all that you're doing. You're helping us get on code and code is empowerment. And once more of us are empowered, we can make the change. We can make the change. We can make the change. So Doc, thank you for having us. Thank you for your book. And we got to have you back because you go really deep in empowerment in some of your other activities. So uh, Code Keepers, make sure you pick up her book. Doc, thank you for hanging out with us. Thanks so much. Bye.
Bye.